all the jungle cruises you can take in the Amazon, this one is undoubtedly the cheapest. And on your left, you'll see the fearsome pygmy hippopotamus. Watch out, he might spit water on you. Jonah, what are you doing? We need to start the show. Dave, I'm auditioning to be a Jungle Cruise tour guide, and I need to practice a little method acting, okay? <clears throat> uh, hey, Dave, what do you call it when a group of apes starts a company? Uh. Monkey business. Uh. <laughs> uh. Oh, no, 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 a lion. Let me grab my pistol to fend him off. Jesus, dude, where'd you get that gun? Garage sale. The serial number's filed off and everything. Stay back. I mean business. This is a strict no lion zone, and I ain't lying. Please stop. If you're not careful, you'll wing a senior citizen. Careful, Dave? Would Dwayne The Rock Johnson, our greatest action star of all time, be careful? The greatest what now? I said Dwayne The Rock Johnson is the greatest action star of all time. I simply cannot let this scorching hot take slide. Why? Because this is Galaxy Brains, and today we're going upriver so I can terminate your thesis with extreme prejudice. We're talking Jungle Cruise with Griffin Newman and David Sims of the Blank Check Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's crusty harbor master, Jonah Ray. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive to the blessed state of the galaxy brain. This week, we are joined by David Sims and Griffin Newman, the hosts of the Blank Check podcast and our dark Opposite mirror universe counterparts. I thought the only shots fired would be in the cold open, but hey Coming in hot today, folks. But before we start an enduring rivalry with our podcast colleagues, let's dive into Logic Brain. That's not a crocodile down there. That is spoilers off the port bow. Ah, spoilers! <laughs> yes, we're talking about Jungle Cruise freely. So if you haven't seen the film, turn this off right now. So give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, then take a nice leisurely stroll around the block. My Apple Watch says you could use the exercise. Let's dive into the plot of Jungle Cruise. Jonah, Jonah, Jungle Cruise starts with the legend of the Tears of the Moon, a thing I have never heard of before, but it's about a magic tree deep in the Amazon with petals that can cure any disease. We flash forward to the 1500s, some conquistadors tried to find it, the tree, they failed, they were cursed to live forever on the banks of the Amazon. And turn into snakes, I guess. Because there's a snake guy. There's a bee guy. This is where Disney throws a little Pirates of the Caribbean onto the Jungle Cruise. Exactly. Yeah, it really felt a, a bit like Jeffrey Rush in those movies. Most of the movie takes place in the 1900s. During World War One. McGregor and Lily Houghton, who are Emily Blunt and Jack Whitehall, they're searching for the Tears of the Moon. But there's some MacGuffins that they need. There's like a, a medallion that she wears that they have to take down the river. They hire Frank. Know this about the jungle. Everything that you see wants to kill you. He takes them down the river, steals the engine for his boat. Because as you know, Paul Giamatti is in this movie. Paul Giamatti doing a lot with a little bit, and he was amazing. 
You insult me, Frank. This is not all of my money. This is like a little pinky thorn nothing. Always great to see Paul Giamatti. But also, while in London, in the uh, very Indiana Jones-style opening, we meet Jesse Plemons. Oh, yes. Steals the movie. This godforsaken, endless Amazon, its infinite tangled tributaries. The big bad in this movie. Jesse Plemons doing an incredible German accent. And then remember, this is World War I German, which is still just fun world dominators before things got real bad in Germany. Uh, he plays Prince Joachim who is the youngest son of Kaiser Wilhelm. Boy, if you have any interest in World War I, this movie is for you. I think he's not supposed to be the comic relief, like Jack Whitehall's character is the comic relief, but this guy is really funny. I love our good friend, Jesse Plemons. Anyway, there's uh, some cannibals in it, but they're actually working for Frank. They're part of like his kind of scheme to make the jungle seem more exciting. Seriously, Frank. Next time, I'm going to charge you more for this booga booga nonsense. They're really helpful because they tell Lily where to find the Tears of the Moon. Anyway, the rock gets stabbed in a fight, and that's where we find out he's actually been alive for 500 years. And he's one of the conquistadors, and he feels really bad about what he did. Yeah, and during the 400 years while living in the Amazon, he has not only learned the English language, but also gotten rid of his Spanish accent entirely. He's also completely jacked. He's a huge man. I wouldn't trust you as far as I could throw you, which clearly isn't very far because you are huge. And everybody remarks about how huge he is because Dwayne Johnson in this movie wears clothes three sizes too small for him. And so he looks like this giant baby the entire movie. He's very charming in the movie, but it's just like, don't don't put him in these clothes. He looks like a JCPenney's catalog model for the toddler section. It's ridiculous. They find the tree together. And then when everything's just about to go okay, that's when Jesse Plemons shows back up. He gets smushed with some rocks. Perfectly wide shot comedic moment. But then of course you think everything's good, but then all the evil monster conquistadors show back up. The monsters are back. Yeah. Edgar Ramirez plays one of the monsters. Doesn't have a lot of lines, but he does get uh, a paycheck at the end of the movie, which is nice. Yeah. So Lily uses the petal from the tree to save the rock. And I guess that releases him from his curse. And then they go to London and yeah, nobody remarks about the giant black Samoan man walking around London in 1915. So that's the end of the movie. It's really lovely. I, I liked it a lot. But we don't talk about our feelings until we transition. Transition to a very exciting segment of the show called Critical Brain. All right, so this is a yet another ride-based movie, Jonah. Based on the Disneyland ride Jungle Cruise, do you have any experience riding Jungle Cruise? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm very familiar with the what it is and what happens in it from, you know, the amazing Weird Al song, Skipper Dan, <laughs> uh, which is a very sad, one of his, his saddest songs about a, a man who wanted to be an actor and trained to be an actor and then just got a quick job while he was trying to be an actor in Hollywood as the uh, skipper on the uh, Jungle Cruise ride at Disneyland and then... Decades go by, and it's all he's ever done. If you don't know what this ride is or what some of these references are, let me just briefly explain Jungle Cruise the ride. You get on a boat, and you have a skipper, a guide with you on the boat. And that person is more often than not a frustrated improv comedian. <laughs> <laughs> so the person who's running the ride just kind of like throws these, these puns out and kind of like silly jokes. There's a vague, loose script because there are events that will take place like a hippo will pop out of the water or natives, quote unquote, will come out of the bushes and shoot arrows at you. But for the most part, these people, the hosts, the skippers get to tell jokes and do their own thing and be charming as they lead this ride. I find it incredibly fucking annoying. <laughs> Because you have to be there while they say the jokes and they're supposed to be bad, but then they are bad. And there's just a bit of anger sometimes in the people that are doing the, the skipper. I should be there on Broadway, knocking them dead in 12 angry men. But instead I'm here telling these lame jokes again and I know that we're not critiquing Al, but this is like a, a rare thing where he's kind of judgy. He's punching down a bit. It's a very sad, very sad song. It's almost like a Randy Newman kind of song where you take a vignette of someone's desperate life and you blow it up. Boat captains are sad people. 
<laughs> about Captain the Sad People. Sad people got no reason to live. <laughs> so if you if you haven't ridden the ride, you don't understand why Frank is such a cornball goofus. But that's why. The rocks you see here in the river are sandstone. But some people just take them for granted. It's one of my boulder attractions. Which I thought they did excellently. Having like the rock, he like revels anytime he gets to be dad joke guy. There is a bit of a glint in his eye when he gets to be purposely unfunny. Yes. And you can tell he's having a lot of fun with it. But everyone's groaning at his jokes and having a little girl going, please make him stop. <laughs> Which is how you feel when you're on the Jungle Cruise ride. And yet they made a movie out of this thing that most people don't enjoy. It's bizarre. And yet they made a great movie out of it, I think. That is the part that's cool about the ride is that it is purposefully hacky and silly. What isn't cool about the ride is some of the racially problematic elements of said ride. So as we talked about in Logic Brain, there is this, this sort of tribe of quote-unquote cannibals who uh, are a part of Frank's kind of play that he does to dupe people into giving him more money. In the ride, there are natives who come out and, as I said, throw spears and shoot darts at you. And so there's a real problematic element to that that is alluded to in this movie, but isn't quite dispelled the way I think they thought it would. Yes, it's funny that they're in on it and they're not necessarily savages in the way that the 20th century looked at indigenous peoples. But it's still like the same kind of stereotypical trope of they don't speak English and they do all these kind of things that we find weird and exoticized. Dave, not to be the white voice in this podcast, mm -hmm. where is the line where we are either showing what was our perception of these people at that time and having to update it for updating's sake? And I don't know the answer to that. I just want to know, like... Uh, well, this movie is about European characters coming to the Amazon. That, in and of itself, is a problem because we don't tell stories about the indigenous peoples of Brazil. We don't tell stories about that life. We tell stories about the outsider coming in and taming this wilderness and the exoticism of that environment. I, I think that's the solution. I, I don't fault the movie for doing it. It is the, the idea, though, that is the problem for me. It's like enough of these stories about European people coming to these foreign countries give me a story about those people. But of course, the response is those people are not box office draws. <laughs> well, okay, why is that? Anyway, that's just what I'm asking for. I I'm just asking for more stories about marginalized people. We can continue to have movies like Jungle Cruise, but let's even it out a little bit. I totally agree with that because I have a feeling people might bring that up with this and rightfully so. Uh, but like, this is like, you know, a movie that's a commercial for ride at a theme park. Uh, you know, I know. Yeah, totally. You can only ask of it to do so much before you're like, well, you've sort of missed the point of why we're making the movie, which is to remind you of how fun it was to ride this ride when you were a kid or to remind you about how much you love other movies that this was clearly inspired by. Sure. We got uh... Remo Williams. The Adventure Begins. That's number one. Number two would be probably National Treasure. Number three would probably be Briscoe County Jr., the TV show. All right. Number four would probably be Wild Wild West, starring Will Smith. Captain America, the first Avenger, the Rocketeer. I think you're forgetting uh, African Queen. African Queen, yeah, okay. Oh, and oh, Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, there's that one. That old chestnut. <laughs> this is so obviously like trying to be Indiana Jones that it's a, like a joke. It's like a meta joke for this movie that it's trying so hard to be Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, especially like, you know, starting the movie in a nice location. They'll have the action opening, but then they go into like a him at his university. Yeah, exactly. Very Indiana Jones stuff. Wooden crates, German bads. It was just... I, I really, really did like it, but I did also really enjoy the dynamic between The Rock and Emily Blunt because I I am a sucker for African Queen, and I did like that they have The Rock drinking. Yeah, he kind of looks like Bogey in that movie. Like, his outfit feels very Bogey in The African Queen to me. 
Very much so. And the fact that Emily Blunt's character is wearing pants, which is a huge like thing that Catherine Hepburn made insanely popular on screen. And there seemed like there was a long time where they wouldn't have villains be super, they'll just be like tonally evil. But in that opening scene, you get Jesse Plemons murdering dudes. This shows that there's stakes. This shows that this guy's super evil. Let's bring back in some of that family violence on the movies that we grew up with in the 80s. Beautiful family violence. Yeah, well, that's a good point because- the idea of violence in, in family movies is hard to quantify because everything is kind of a family movie now. There isn't a clear delineation at the at the multiplex. The idea of what movies for kids or not for kids, or that, that was the government. That was Catholic groups in the 20s lobbying for the government to put ratings onto films was a detriment maybe to you know our film legacy in this country because of the limitations and the and the guidelines and the morality clauses. Yeah, the Hayes Code, the Motion Picture Production Code, yes, was legislation that the Motion Picture Association of America or whatever it was called at the time created to regulate content in movies. So before the Hayes Code there was all kinds of racy material in films and there weren't ratings of any kind. There wasn't this, okay, this is a family movie. This is not a family movie. Obviously those existed from a production standpoint, but there wasn't this idea that you can't talk about this stuff. And there's actually an interesting thing for us to talk about related to how we show life in movies because Jack Whitehall's character yeah. is a gay character. It's not a huge plot point, but it, there is a moment. There's a scene in the movie where he explains why he's not married to Frank. He never says the word gay, but he does say that he is not interested in women. Did you hear about this before seeing the movie? I did, and then I forgot. See, I, yeah, I had no idea. The story came out that his character was going to be gay. And I was like, okay, this is just going to be another thing sort of like in Cruella where there's a character who we know is gay, wink, wink, but never says anything about his sexual proclivities. Or LeFou and Beauty and the Beast, where it's just kind of like a blink and you miss it sort of deal. You know, it's sort of like these bits of representation that don't go the extra mile to really mean anything except for we can put a press release out about it. You know, Frank has lived 400 years. There's no way a person can live for that long and not just be pansexual. Oh, yeah. There's there's no way. There is no way that wouldn't happen. And I was really hoping for some kind of like conversation. I was like, well, hey, you live a long time and you, you know, you try all the flavors of Boston Robbins. <laughs> yeah, I was desperate for them to end up together. I enjoyed it. I thought it was going to be perfunctory, but I ended up thinking it was it was a really touching moment, especially that that monologue where he talks about why him and his sister are so close. I thought it was great. Yes. And I thought that was a big reason of uh, making him gay. How can this guy who should be a part of this society, his father was an explorer, like he's it's like he feels out of place in this man's world, this straight man's world. And I do truly think that that was a, a brilliant idea. He doesn't want to be there because you need that kind of character in these. You need the fancy person that with the, I can't handle these things. Everything's gross. You, you, you want that. I wanted to go to a primitive backwater where I can't understand a word anyone's saying. I'd visit our relatives in Scotland. Like Kate Capshaw in Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom. Exactly. It's like, but why would he even go with her? And then just to have that thing, it's like, well, this is why he feels out of place. This is why he has an allegiance to her. I thought it was brilliant storytelling. I really, really enjoyed that moment. I enjoyed his character. I fucking loved this movie. <laughs> I wanted it to be a big, fun, funny action movie. And the violence was great. Dwayne Johnson is very good at making fights look real because he understands the physicality of it and the way to make a punch look real. And that's a skill that professional wrestlers have is how do you communicate violence when it is not as violent as it seems? You know, if you're pulling a punch, the person who is being punched is responsible for making that punch look real. Exactly. And you have to do it live. There's no cutting in wrestling. It's happening in the ring and you have to sell it to the person closest to you and the person in the back row of the arena. It's a, it's a real skill and he pulls it off amazingly in pro wrestling, but he brings that knowledge and that ability to this movie. Dave, what you're saying is right. Like he trained in wrestling. He knows how to take a punch and make it look real. A true, real good action star needs to show pain and humility at points. And here's the thing. This guy is a true populist because he's needed to entertain 
huge audiences, an entire stadium full of people. And so he's bringing that in to his films. And he's like, he's thinking about people in the back row. He's thinking about people right up front. He's thinking about people watching at home. And he's also, as time goes by, getting better and better at subtle acting. So he's now has this huge range of ability to be just an amazing action star. Maybe the greatest. He really can do everything. He's He's physically believable. He's charming. My God, one of the greatest smiles in history. He makes people feel comfortable. There's a there's this kindness to him where you want to give this big man a hug. Even though he could break you in half, the man is just pure goodness. Yeah, good actors have gone and been really great in action movies, but he's coming from another angle. And I, I think that's why it's taken him some time to really be as good as like Harrison Ford or... Bruce Willis or Arnold Schwarzenegger like so many of the action stars of today are dark like brooding like all the superhero action stars the Christian Bales of the world there's a grimness to all of these these action stars and Dwayne doesn't do that Dwayne is just like yeah I'm having a good time I'm enjoying myself this is fun and you're gonna have fun along with me and that is what I look for in an action star I don't look for anything more complicated than it's physically believable, he seems like he's having a good time, and you want to root for them. Okay, well, all right, so good. I convinced you then. You think Dwayne Johnson is the greatest action star of all time? To be perfectly honest, I, I can't argue with the logic. This is this is an airtight argument, man. Wait, hold on. So are what? We're agreeing on this? Completely. Okay, well, this has never really happened before. Yeah, it feels kind of weird, actually. Are you going to like merge into one evolved super being like at the end of Star Trek, the motion picture? Doesn't look like it. Yeah, I thought, well, I mean, maybe we'll unlock some superpowers to help us fight Griffin and David in the next segment, like telekinesis, laser eyes, or like a haircut that looks like a great at every angle, which I do not have right now. Hey, guys, can you please wrap it up? God? Mindy Kaling? No, it's your producer, Kylie. Can we go to break now? Oh, Kylie, yeah. Oh. Yeah, sure. I mean... We were just hoping something cool would happen here. You know, like I get sucked into a void or Jonah turns into a sentient gas creature. Look, even here at Vox, we have a budget and we can only afford to have you transcend the astral plane twice a month. Well, <laughs> in, in that case, when we come back, Link checks. Griffin Newman and David Sims will decide who the greatest action movie star of all time is. Dave, you nailed it. Very cheap, very efficient, gorgeous. Kylie, 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 how'd I do? Oh, yeah. Uh, hi, Jonah. Has anybody ever told you you sound like Mindy Kaling? I get that. Probably a lot of you get that you sound like David Cross. What an episode it's been so far, Jonah. I've had an amazing time talking about a movie I really liked more than I thought I would. And we agreed on something for the first time in the history of this podcast. Sure did. Which is incredible. You're, you're witnessing history here, folks. <laughs> but we're about to make a little bit more history because today our guests are our Mirror Universe Dark Opposites, Griffin and David from the Blank Check Podcast. Griffin and David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I, I, I think this is the first time anyone has accused us of being dark or edgy in any way. <laughs> well, compared to us, I think you probably are. We're constantly talking about things we like. Speaking of things we like, I like Dwayne Johnson, and I personally think he is the greatest action star of his time. Well, here, I'm about to prove your introduction correct. I strongly disagree, and you and I are going to hash this out. I knew it. This is why uh -huh. I, I figured this was going to be a great episode, because you're coming in hot. I think that I kind of agreed with Dave's take. Until the last few years, I have felt a little iffier about some of... Dwayne's action movie choices. And I want to drill down into what works and what doesn't about like his on-screen persona, how it's like shifted over the years. Whereas I feel like Griff, you used to be all in on him. I was, yes, yes. And I'm- Well, you're fast fam, Griff. I'm fast fam. And that's obviously, look, my allegiances lie with the Toretto family and the chosen family around the Toretto's. So part of my shifting of allegiance is against- Dwayne obviously has to do with my loyalty to Vin. But yes, I was all the way in for a very long period of time. Right. He's underrated. This guy, he's making Walking Tall 
or whatever, but you're like, you know, he's he's got real movie star energy because he had the wrestler to actor label, I guess, early on. His career started off really well. Scorpion King was a big hit. He did The Rundown, which is another jungle movie. For some reason, he's doing jungle movies all the time. He loves the jungle. He loves the jungle. That and then Jumanji, this. But then there was this fallow period of his career where he was doing stuff that people didn't really see. Like you guys were saying, he developed this reputation for being underrated. This was the period of time where I felt like I was boosting him the hardest. Because the speed run, as you said, he's like a huge WWE, then F, superstar, right? Mm -hmm. Then Mummy Returns and Scorpion King is about as big as a launching platform someone could have to sort of have an entire industry get behind you and go, we really think this guy is a movie star. The stuff after that that I think, you know, like... Walking Tall. Walking Tall, right. Race to Witch Mountain. Game Plan. See, for me, that's the first transition point, right? You go from, like, he's trying to be sort of stripped down 70s, like, action dude, right? Rundown famously has that moment where he walks into a bar. Schwarzenegger, right. Yeah, walks out, taps him on the shoulder and goes, like, you take it from here, right? Everyone was sort of saying, like, he has to be the guy. He has to be Schwarzenegger. Then he does those movies for a couple years and they, like, don't connect on the level that people think. Then he does his hard pivot into family movies, right? He does Witch Mountain and The Game Plan. Tooth Fairy. And this thing that I distinctly remember that I, I sort of, like, rerun in my head all the time as his career has grown to absurd heights and evolved is he did this cover story for Entertainment Weekly when Get Smart was coming out. And it was all about, like, The Rock has changed and he's got a new look. He had lost, like, a hundred pounds of muscle. He had trimmed down and he was like, I'm doing comedies, I'm doing family movies. I used to be obsessed with being the biggest and the toughest and I realized, like, I can stretch and I can try different things. I just want to be a movie star, you know? But that's right in the middle of Walking Tall and Doom and South on Tales. Yeah, he started doing some arty stuff right around there, early 2000s. Apparently, this was his agents telling him, you have to lose weight and you have to grow your hair out and you have to be a normal person. You're too imposing, right? You can't play a regular person, right? Right, so it's like, he's got his action movies that don't really connect. He tries going a little artier, that doesn't connect. I think Southland Tales is like a big hit for him, you know? I thought he was great in Be Cool. I remember seeing that because I didn't watch him in wrestling, but I saw him Be Cool as I was like, this guy's super funny. That's one of his better performances, if you ask me. But I think he takes the failure of Southland Tales hard, right? Yeah. So yeah. then there's this pivot. He's sort of in his head. His agents go trimmed down, grow the hair out, be an everyman. He does these family movies. They're a hit. And then he's like trying to step back into action. At that point, like Faster, I think is totally solid. The next year after that, he does Fast Five and he rules. And it's like, it feels like this guy has figured out how he works in action movies, you know? And he's gone the opposite direction. He's gone as hard as he possibly can. In Fast Five, he's got like the Scott Ian goatee. <laughs> you know, he's bigger than anyone's ever been. He's like covered in baby oil and it's all like tough guy jokes and all this sort of stuff. And he's like trying different things. He's doing like G.I. Joe 2 and all that. Snitch, which I think is underrated. Like this is a period where I'm really into what he's doing. And then Pain and Game, which I argue is not only the best performance he's ever given, but I would have given him the best supporting actor Oscar that year. And I was just like, this guy has clicked in. He's figured it out. And then it's like this shift as he continues doing the Fast and Furious movies. But as time goes on, he starts to fight for a little more real estate in those movies and not just real estate, but maybe having control of the narrative, both on set and off, where I get a little like, huh, you know, this isn't your house, Dwayne. This is a group project. This is a family. <laughs> you just revealed yourself. You were making jokes about Dom Toretto, but it is really just because you feel he muscled his way into your favorite film franchise and made it his own. Yeah. you got a personal axe to grind with my good friend Dwayne, and I'm going to take umbrage with that, and I'm going to say, just because he shines brighter than everyone else in those movies doesn't mean you need to knock him down a peg. This is just his talent rising to the top. 
The cream always does rise to the top, Griffin, and that is what's happening here. It's a big bucket of cream with the name Dwayne Johnson written into it. <laughs> Here's where I disagree slightly, is I, I give you 100%. He elevated the franchise when he came in. He yeah. really took the thing to the next level. It was undeniable. You saw the impact. You saw, I think, the friction between him and Vin was really adding a lot on screen. All that sort of stuff helps. And then there is a point where I think, because he was feeling high on how much he had added to the franchise, he started trying to take the franchise and turn it into something different. And my case in point here is, I think 8 is the worst of the mainline movies, and that's the one where they have to reconfigure the entire narrative around Vin and... Dwayne don't want to be in the same shot, right? They both have to be the leads of their own halves of the movies. And I think that one really loses its way. I agree with that. I think it's the worst one by far. There's not room for two alphas in this franchise, right? Fine. So Hobbs and Shaw, I'm in favor of. I'm like, look, let him go off and do his own thing. That's cool. I don't love that movie primarily because I think that movie loses Hobbs as a character. He's turning into Dwayne. Hobbs is supposed to be this sort of like hopped up, hyper masculine. It's funny, like he's playing it in a funny way. But he's like a pill. Right, he's kind of a jerk and, and that's part of the friction. And then right, by Hobbs and Shaw, I mean, he and Shaw are always button heads, but like he's he's becoming a little softer around the edges and it does feel like Dwayne sort of trying to massage his star image in this Schwarzeneggerian way. And yes, that is a word I said. I think you've captured something really important, which is that in that first Fast and the Furious movie that he's in, Fast Five, he's the antagonist. He's, he's chasing the, the gang. He's the villain of that movie. And because of that, he's playing a more arch, kind of more annoying version of his persona because he has to be the bad guy compared to Dom and everybody else. As the movies go on and becomes more of a part of the family, then he loses that edge. He loses that thing that you liked about him in the first place, which is that he's darker. Yes, and I, th I think I just feel like when I watch any Dwayne movie of the last, let's say, four or five years, the narrative of every movie is the maintaining of his star persona. In a certain way, every movie and every scene, he has to be everything. He has to be the toughest guy, but also the nicest guy, but also the funniest guy, also the most romantic guy. He's constantly referencing things from his Instagram and his personal life. He's sort of winking at the off-screen persona. And so much of the movie is built around everyone reasserting how much he rules. And I think there was a similar thing that happened with Schwarzenegger, where Schwarzenegger was the best, but part of what made him so cool was that he was willing to go in all these really weird directions, you know? A lot of his trajectory is very similar, though. Yes. He came out with these, like, Conan, Terminator, Red Sonja, Raw Deal, Predator, all these kind of... And then he dipped down, and he went into Kindergarten Cop. Right. Uh, and then he had Last Action Hero, and then True Lies, Junior, Twins. My favorite Arnold movies are the ones where he is sincerely playing that guy. Like, Commando yes. is one of my favorite Arnold movies, because it's just, like, a pure revenge fantasy where he is playing it completely straight. Right. The comedy comes from the fact that this giant Austrian man is going around mowing people down and throwing. That's what Commando gets, right? It's like he can be this ridiculous looking. It's part and parcel of what makes him so appealing. But we don't have to wink at it all the time. We don't have to constantly be like, oh, isn't it funny that this giant guy is doing this stuff? No, but it's also Dwayne's career has to assume that people have seen this happen before. They've seen Schwarzenegger. They saw Sylvester Stallone. So he has to be on the, you know, the shoulders of these, Not they're not giants because they're very short men. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Dwayne Johnson is legit tall. And there's also a bunch of meta-style commentary that's come into our culture, especially within social media. So he has to kind of play himself. To say that he's like just playing himself in these movies, so that's what fucking George Clooney does. That's what a star does. Well, this is the thing, John. I'm not saying that he's playing himself. I'm saying that I think the movies become about him. Mm-hmm. That's a key difference because I I dislike when people say like, oh, he can't act, he's playing himself. Because I agree with you. Like, I love movie stars who have a persona and know how to play it really well. However, I think the key to that is bringing that persona and staying invested in the reality and not breaking the reality of that movie. Yeah. And I think at a certain point, rock movies have started breaking their own reality because they need to be aware of we're maintaining the rock legacy, you know? Total Recall is a Schwarzenegger movie that has fun with the fact that he's playing a regular guy, 
but he's actually Arnold Schwarzenegger. But it never stops the momentum of or breaks the reality of the movie itself. Yes, yes. That's the brilliance of it. Because in Total Recall, there's also the tension of like, is this guy actually making this up? Or is, of course, he seems like someone who's actually a secret agent. Like that would explain everything about how he looks. And then by the late 90s, when he's in Jingle All the Way and he's like, I'm just a dad trying to get my kid a toy. And you're like, are we not supposed to talk about it? No, you're not. (laughs) Tom Hanks passed and you said, sure, I'll do it. And then that's why the movie exists. But Total Recall, like that's Paul Verhoeven, who like, that's what he does perfectly. He does two movies at the same time. Jonah, (laughs) great point. When I talk about my whole Fast and Furious allegiance, I think Vin is Stallone. Absolutely. Where it's like his power comes from these very specific franchises and iconic characters he's built. And also the guy's this weird kind of moody, emotional mess. He takes big swings that like blow up in his face, you know? He's driven by ego, but he does have this weird like boxer's poet spirit where he's like, I have things to say in my heart. I'm still waiting for Vin to direct his staying alive. Right, exactly. Which he's got in there and I guarantee you everyone in his circle is like, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> I gotta show them the movies. I have feelings too. Do you know? At a, at a certain point, like Schwarzenegger, you know, The Rock became a mogul. He became a brand. And in the same way that the Young Rock show is now tiptoeing into should Rock be a politician, as Arnold played that sort of like soft shoe game for 10 years before finally running for office, I think he's become such a big thing that it's hard to accept him within a movie. But I think the other key difference here is at his peak, Arnold was working with Verhoeven and Cameron and these guys who had very sly senses of humor, undeniable technical chops, but also this really, really impeccable understanding of what a movie star is and how to use their power in your film. And a thing that I think has led The Rock a little astray is that he has spent the better part of the last decade working with a lot of guys who are like former visual effects supervisors, commercial directors. The thing that The Rock has that none of these other guys have is that he is genuinely funny. And so how can he like not use that in his wheelhouse? It's like Schwarzenegger can be funny in con- in, the, in a certain context, same with Sylvester Stallone, but they don't know how to uh, sell a joke. The Rock does. The funniest Stallone ever was was Demolition Man, and that was kind of by accident. That's right. That's the best use of him. He can be a good, nervy, straight man. Same with Vin, basically. It's a very fine line for me, but it's sort of like if it bends it's funny if it breaks it isn't kind of thing you look at stuff like be cool and how clearly he has this sort of cute comedy radar you know but i think now the movies have gotten to a point where they're he's he's winking at the audience so much that it's hard for me to stay invested in anything that's happening on screen now i say all of this as a lead-up to full circle the most encouraging thing in the last 10 years of his career for me is him now doubling down on Jamie Colette Sarah, who I think is this kind of Cameron-esque guy who, like, has come from these pulpy movies, you know, this sort of genre trash that always was better executed and a little more clever than it had any right to be, has never gotten to play in the majors and work with a big budget before. The Rock has taken him under his wing, is letting him put his thumbprint on these movies, but also Jamie Colette Sarah is really funny. Like, he's got this very sly sense of humor. Orphan is, like, one of the most ridiculous movies ever made. The way that that Jamie Colette Sarah used Liam Neeson over five or six movies, who's another guy who is so ridiculous and so specific being placed into these everyman movies, but he was able to make it work. I'm very encouraged by the fact that he seems to have like finally found maybe his filmmaker, you know? David, I want to ask you a question about this particular movie, because it does feel like when you go back and you look at it from the totality of his career, it feels like a bit of a risk. So he's stepping outside of the comfort zone of playing Hobbs every couple of years. This is taking a weirder director who, as Griffin pointed out, doesn't have the blockbuster pedigree. And then he's doing this movie that's based on this ride that a lot of people hate. <laughs> Jungle Cruise is an annoying ride. Right, not a beloved ride. Yeah, how do you feel about this as a a career decision for Dwayne right now? 
it feels like he's trying to do what he did, you know, whatever, 15 years ago. And when he was doing it 15 years ago, when he was popping up in race or 10 years ago, whatever, race to which mountain and journey to the mysterious Island or whatever, it felt a little B grade. And this feels like him being like, I'm back. I'm working with Disney for the first time in a long time. It feels like he's trying to sort of plant his foot in the family friendly, square jawed, smiley hero zone with something that is not fast five that's him hitching a ride to something that exists sure jungle cruise exists nothing can be completely original anymore and i know jungle cruise right you know does exist it's a name that people might have heard of but doesn't it kind of feel like there's a confidence to this project and like i think jungle cruise is more successful than the sort of anonymous like you know rampages and skyscrapers of the world in that like he's not imposing what we're talking about, like his sort of like Dwayne Johnson personality on the character too much. He feels a little more comfortable doing what this movie is asking of his character. Uh, Yeah, I do feel like he plays the character honestly. There isn't what you guys have been talking about with the winking at the camera and the kind of brand management bullshit that we all find annoying. He just plays this guy, Frank, realistically. He does all this shtick on the Jungle Cruise from the ride. He's very affable and grumpy when necessary, sort of like a Harrison Ford. Like this does feel like obviously aesthetically beholden to Indiana Jones, but also from his tone and the way he plays the character is very much indebted to Harrison Ford. But I think that's a key point is like you're saying, he's playing grumpy in this. What's interesting about him going all in on Black Adam now is that Black Adam is an asshole, right? Like not not only is that character originally a villain who becomes an anti-villain, uh, anti-hero rather, but like his defining trait is this guy is like unbearably angry, you know? He's not playing Superman. Like I think him leaning into a little bit of the prickliness is what made him really work on screen in the first place, you know? And even just if you go back to his wrestling persona, he was a guy who was doing heel face turns, you know? And he was a guy where part of the charm of The Rock as a wrestler was like, oh, now he's playing the good guy, but he's kind of unbearably arrogant, you know? The wrestling part of it is crucial. And, you know, I I love bringing up wrestling in relation to movies because it's all the same storytelling. It's just different ways to communicate the same ideas. And, you know, having been behind the scenes at WWE and understanding the writing of these shows, you really get a keen sense of, what makes people like you and what makes people hate you? Because that is all the storytelling is, is okay, Dwayne is a heel now. So what are the five elements that we need to put into his character to make people hate him again? He's got to start insulting the sports team. He's got to start wearing the sunglasses again. He has to stop shaking hands with the fans. He has to sneer and his music has to be slower. Like those are the things that are the the bedrocks of of creating a character. And so he is so keenly aware of that stuff. And he has surrounded himself with people who have been around for those moments of his career where he turns heel on Stone Cold and Mankind. That informs so much of his work. And I think he figured that out, hopefully, going forward, that that edge is what made him cool. And he's systematically carved that edge away, and he has to find it again. Yeah, I I think the problem, though, it's what you said. It's like the sanding off the edges. And it feels like maybe he's course correcting a little now, but he was like taking away the anger and taking away the vulnerability at the same time and was just sort of for a couple years there in a zone where he was playing like, John, great guy. I'm great at everything, you know? That's another thing I find encouraging about Jungle Cruise is like he's bringing on Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt, who stole a movie from Tom Cruise, who can go toe-to-toe with anyone and isn't just going to play the person who's fangirling at The Rock, which he often asks his male co-stars to do. Yeah, there is a great rapport that they have, Emily Blunt and and Dwayne, in this movie. And the relationship that they develop feels earned. It doesn't feel like it's been shoehorned into the movie the way it did in maybe San Andreas with Carla Gugino or in Journey or in Skyscraper or any of the the many anonymous movies that he made (laughs) just for the paycheck. There is that chemistry that they have, which is really helpful. But I want to talk a little bit more about the action stars that sort of preceded The Rock or are working parallel to him now because he does stand out. 
he is one of the only people playing these characters doing this throwbacky 80s 90s action hero thing because for the longest time the action stars of the era were nick cage in the rock or in con air or ghost rider or face off like kind of a squirmy weird creepified character actor becomes action star but it feels like it's a little bit uh in on the joke sure sure now we're at a point where People are following in The Rock's footsteps. And, and as, as we wrap up, I do have to point out that John Cena and Dave Bautista are following the path that he kind of blazed as an action star from the wrestling world and doing it in very different ways. So the question I want to ask you is, what did John Cena and Dave Bautista hopefully learn from The Rock's success that helped them not end up being another Hulk Hogan? And by another Hulk Hogan, I, of course, mean saying a racial slur in a sex tape. His worst performance. Can I say, far and away, his worst on-camera performance. But the most convincing. I'm a huge Dave Bautista fan, too. I, and, I, and John Cena, honestly. I both they, they both, I think, understood that there was no problem displaying vulnerability and a sense of humor on screen from minute one. Whereas, it, like, I feel like when I was a teenager and, like, you know, Goldberg drops into some action movie, it's like, yeah, he's going to play a, a mindless sort of thug. You know, where it's like you're just going to play someone who barely talks and like throws people around and there's going to be lots of violence and it's going to be pitched right at what we think your audience is, which is like a male audience that wants a lot of, you know, big action. Which important to note that both Batista and John Cena had sort of false start movie careers doing that. Like Cena, they did, what was it called? 13 Rounds and The Marine. And Batista was doing some sort of like mindless thug kind of roles. And both of them had to step back and go like, what's my thing here. And they both did comedy. They both did comedy and that's what made it work. They both did comedy and that was their way back into action. And when like Bautista showed up in Guardians of the Galaxy and I go into that movie and I'm excited like you know it was a novelty that Chris Pratt was the star right? I, I love the, all these actors who are in it. Bautista is not someone who's like pinging for me at all and I just remember minutes in being like this guy is blowing everyone up. This guy is the MVP of this of this good movie with lots of good performances and it's all just because he mixed the sort of big scary hunk of meat you know thing that we expect from maybe a wrestler actor with vulnerability sense of humor self-awareness in a way that did not feel forced or sort of overly arch or anything like that. I mean, Bautista's just a good actor. Of the three, he is my favorite by far. I would agree with that. I would go as far as to say on just kind of a pure technical acting level, I think he is the best wrestler ever to make that transition. If I could take one step back, though, to to come to The Rock's defense since I came out swinging at the beginning of the episode, because we were just throwing out that Bautista counterpoint, and I'm thinking about it, and it is like, I think those guys are more versatile performers at this point in time, you know? And I, I think what I like about them is that they're less protective of their image and they're throwing themselves into things. That having been said, and this is just kind of, you can't argue with the results here, they have struggled to then make themselves just kind of a pure, straightforward action star in that way, to lead a movie. They're usually doing ensemble things, you know, or duo things, and they, they have not been able to transcend to the level The Rock has. The fact that we can talk about the 20-year arc of The Rock's career and when he's been getting it right and when he's been getting it wrong and what's encouraging about the future and what mistakes he's learned from and whatever, he has kind of proven all of us wrong just by the mere fact that he has remained an above-the-title guy for two decades, which no other wrestler was ever able to do. Yeah, and may never again. I mean, I feel like just from his wrestling career, everyone knew he was a prodigy from day one. And the fact that he was able to do this is just another sign of how advanced he is as a performer. Because I can't think of any wrestler now who's working in WWE who could do what he did. But yeah, Dwayne Johnson figured it out. And for that, he deserves a lot of respect. And guys, having you on the show has given me a newfound respect for your dynamic. So thank you for giving us a little taste. We're like two people... Stuck on a jungle cruise together, constantly switching between uh, love and hate. Who's the baby face and who's the heel changes all the time. Wonderful stuff. Thank you for joining us. If you, are as a listener, don't listen to Blank Check, what's wrong with you, number one. And number two, go listen to it right now. Guys, thank you again so much. Hopefully we'll be on your show 
sooner rather than later. Mm, raised rock eyebrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you guys for having us so much. Each week, we wrap up this show with a Galaxy Brain take from one of our listeners. Here is Silas with his take on Space Jam, A New Legacy. Hey, guys. This is Silas from Chicago. I'm a big fan of the show, and I am here to deliver you guys a Galaxy Brain take on Space Jam. Like a lot of people, I have seen repeatedly the clip of where Porky Pig raps as the notorious P.I.G., The track that Porky is rapping over is originally from a track called Flava In Your Ear, which is by Craig Mack from the early 90s. But the original is not actually the most famous version of Flava In Your Ear. Probably the most famous version is a remix that was released a little bit later featuring other rappers from Craig Mack's label, Bad Boy, one of whom was the Notorious B.I.G. Scholars of early 90s hip-hop will tell you that that guest verse was actually a significant step on Biggie's journey as a superstar at that label. So, in a way, it's actually kind of the perfect thing for Porky to be rapping over. So let me know what you think. Peace to you guys. Keep up the good work. Don't get lost out there in the galaxy. Wow. Silas. Wow. Great take, man. Yeah, I didn't put that together. I got chills. I got chills. Full disclosure, I kind of disassociate every time that scene comes on. So I didn't even think about what the track was, but that's a really great point. You're like the Chuck Klosterman of the Galaxy Brain universe now. This is incredible stuff. And, you know, you think all the time and characters, like they don't do a lot of the stuff lightly in this stuff. They don't just say, and then he'll rap. The amount of references in this movie, yeah, they are going to take the time and care to really make that kind of something, even if it's just a small win for them or the people who know. As Joel Hodgson says, when it comes to a reference, doing a reference in a riff and Mystery Science Theater 3000, not everyone will get it, but the right people will. Yeah, that's the thing that we always have to remember. And one of the reasons why I love thinking about movies so deeply on this show is because the craftspeople, the music supervisors, the sound designers, the set decorators, they take their job really seriously and they have fun with their jobs and they try to find little opportunities to assert their creativity or their personal interests into the things that they're working on. It's the cosmic gumbo, as they say, isn't it? So if you want to call in like Silas and give us your galaxy brain take, we'd love to hear what you have to say about next week's episode topic, the fantasy epic, The Green Knight. Our number is 213-570-8069 and is also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take. And while you're at it, do us the solid and rate and review Galaxy Brains on Apple Podcasts. I can show my mom your review and she'll stop thinking I wasted my life by going into comedy. It's nice that your mom cares enough to tell you what she's thinking, you know. It's rare, but when she does, boy, it stings. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, we're rolling one of those weird six-sided dice and cosplaying as people who have seen the movie The Green Knight. No, we're uh, actually people who are going to see the movie The Green Knight. So you're not dressing up? Why would I dress up as myself? Okay, Mr. I Hate Fun, just read the credits for it. Galaxy Brains is produced by Kelly Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautam Shrikashin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches, and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant, and Russ Frushstick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melnizek, who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Jonah. And I'm Dave. Watch out, there's a badger coming straight for us. Don't worry, Dave, I still have my unregistered firearm. Welcome to the job.